0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 13th. In today's news, President Trump's lawyer claims he has absolute immunity from being investigated. A federal judge puts a hold on the Justice Department's move to throw out Michael Flynn's guilty plea. And Republicans win a House special election in Wisconsin and lead in another in California. But first, the big idea. Lebanon today became the latest country to reimpose restrictions after experiencing a surge of new coronavirus infections, almost exactly two weeks after it appeared to have contained the spread of the virus and began easing up. Authorities ordered a four-day near-complete lockdown to allow officials time to assess the surge in new cases. The reemergence of the coronavirus in many parts of Asia is also prompting a return to closures in places that had claimed success in battling the disease, including South Korea, which had been regarded as one of the continent's success stories. In the Chinese city of Wuhan, where the pandemic first emerged, authorities today ordered the testing of all 11 million inhabitants after six new clusters of infections emerged, five weeks after that city announced it had rid itself of COVID-19. All of Saudi Arabia is going into 24-hour lockdown for the five-day holiday marking the end of Ramadan, which is coming in 10 days. The move rolls back the easing of restrictions that were allowed during the fasting period of the Muslim holiday, but that period has brought a dramatic increase in new infections around Riyadh and across the Persian Gulf. Germany, widely regarded as the model in Europe of a balanced response, is now warning that some areas need to reinstate restrictions after localized outbreaks caused the national number of cases to spike. Paris police today are instituting an emergency ban on drinking by the ZEN. After revelers defied social distancing measures on Monday, the first day France began to lift some of its restrictions. Gatherings of 10 people or fewer are now permitted in France, but police in Paris had to break up small groups that were commingling by the river's edge and that had thus formed a crowd. The Delhi government in India has had to impose a 70 percent tax on alcohol after throngs crowded liquor stores when they reopened last week after being closed for almost a month. The World Health Organization recommended that countries limit alcohol sales, saying drinking can make the virus worse. That order from the WHO prompted bans on liquor sales in parts of South Africa, as well as Greenland, Thailand and Mexico. But as those bans have begun to be lifted, along with other restrictions, worrisome crowding has ensued. In Bangkok recently, crowds swarmed as people were able to buy liquor for the first time in several weeks. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm glad we didn't impose such restrictions. I couldn't handle the daily deluge of disastrous news and the mounting reports of dead loved ones without a stiff drink every night. And as of this morning, at least 81,663 of our fellow Americans have died from the contagion. Tony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, testified before the Senate yesterday that the real number is likely vastly higher. One of our latest fallen heroes is Daniel Zane. When he was 19 and an army private, he went to Europe to help save the world from Nazism. Dodging bombs and bullets and surrounded by German enemy soldiers, Daniel had one purpose in mind as he bolted 80 yards through an open field under heavy enemy fire on March 2nd, 1945. A fellow soldier was wounded. Daniel carried the man to safety, an act of heroism that earned him the Bronze Star. All these years later, Daniel was again unfaltering, never leaving his wife Valerie's bedside during the past year and a half as she neared the end of a seven year battle with Parkinson's disease and dementia. In March, as the coronavirus pummeled nursing homes across the country, Valerie's nursing unit in Haverford, Pennsylvania, Hadn't yet had any cases, but decided to close its doors to visitors. To be able to continue to see his wife, he moved out of his independent apartment and into a skilled nursing room right below her hospice room, and he stayed even after a nurse tested positive for the virus there. Daniel did not want his wife of 71 years to die alone. Weeks after he moved in, Daniel became fatigued and had trouble breathing. He was taken to a hospital. A day after his test came back positive for COVID-19, Valerie died. Daniel was already unresponsive. He died two days later. What's scary is that the worst pain for many is still to come. Economists from Harvard this morning projected a new study that more than 100,000 American small businesses have shut down permanently because of the pandemic. Their latest data suggests that at least 2% of small businesses in America are gone and will never come back. Meanwhile, there were growing concerns from coast to coast about civil unrest. Yesterday, in Michigan, an armed militia helped a barber shop unlawfully reopen. Members of a group called the Michigan Home Guard stood outside Carl Menke's barber shop with assault rifles, ready to blockade the door if police arrived to shut him back down. They were determined to help the 77-year-old reopen his shop in defiance of state orders. Dozens of armed sympathizers joined them, wearing Trump sweatshirts and Trump cowboy hats and waving Trump flags. They gathered not because they needed haircuts, but to rail against Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer's approach to fighting the outbreak in Michigan, which, by the way, remains one of the nation's worst hotspots. They were channeling President Trump's support of such protests, but some were also taking aim at the state's Republicans, who they say have not done enough to, quote, liberate their state from safety measures that have ground life to a halt. The protest has forced Michigan's Republican lawmakers to strike a delicate balance, managing a deadly virus, while also being careful not to contradict Trump or alienate his most fringy supporters. In California, a target security guard broke his arm during a confrontation with two men who refused to wear masks inside the store, putting other customers at risk. In Hawaii, the Major General, who leads that state's National Guard, warned yesterday of looming riots if the economy there does not reopen soon. Kenneth Hara said the state needs to accept risk. Some will die, he said. Hara, who runs the National Guard and serves as the state's director of emergency management, told lawmakers, quote, if we let the economy go the way it's going, I feel there will be significant civil unrest and worst case civil disturbance and rioting. Hawaii's economy is heavily dependent on tourism, which is ground to a halt. The state has discouraged tourists from coming by instituting a mandatory two-week quarantine for all new arrivals and has paid for more than a dozen violators to be sent home. A number of rule breakers spotted leaving their hotel rooms have been arrested and face fines or prison time. Hawaii previously boasted one of the country's lowest unemployment rates, but now more than one in three Hawaiian workers are jobless, and officials have yet to offer a framework for when tourism can resume. But thousands and thousands of Americans are getting sick on the job in states that have chosen to reopen. Recent figures show a surge of infections in meatpacking and poultry processing plants. There's been a spike of new cases among construction workers in Austin, Texas, where that sector has returned to work. Austin health officials say it can be directly tied to the state easing restrictions. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, the highly anticipated Supreme Court arguments over President Trump's efforts to block disclosure of his income tax returns and private financial records pointed to the possibility of a mixed outcome. Moreover, several justices suggested there might be more work for lower courts to do, which could delay any turnover of the documents being sought by congressional Democrats and Manhattan's district attorney until after the November election. In more than three hours of teleconferenced hearings broadcast to all who wanted to listen, the justices debated presidential authority and accountability from all angles, and now they'll meet in private to try to reach some consensus. A few themes emerged from watching the arguments. In general, the justices seemed more troubled by subpoenas issued by three House committees than with the ones coming from New York County District Attorney Cyrus Vance. None indicated they agreed with the assertion from Trump's private lawyer, Jay Sekulow, that the president enjoys total immunity from investigation while in office. There was no discussion of whether the court lacks authority to decide the merits of the dispute, even though the justices themselves had requested briefings from the lawyers on the subject. The court's previous major decisions involving presidential authority were unanimous. Richard Nixon was ordered to turn over White House tape recordings, and Bill Clinton was required to respond to a sexual harassment lawsuit filed by Paula Jones. A nine-to-nothing ruling in this case does not seem a possibility. But some, led by Chief Justice John Roberts, seem to be looking for a middle ground that would avoid a deeply split decision in this highly charged political environment. In the combined congressional case, for instance, Roberts said Trump's lawyers recognized Congress has at least some right to issue subpoenas, and lawyers for Congress acknowledge that there are some limits. Trump's two choices for the court, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, sounded ready to protect the president— Justice Elena Kagan displayed some agreement with both sides. On the one hand, she suggested the president's lawyers were asking for far too much. But later, she suggested that one of the congressional subpoenas also was perhaps too much. Likewise, at times, Kagan's fellow liberal justice, Stephen Breyer, seemed to think the court's past decisions settled the matter. But he expressed concern, as he did more than two decades ago in Clinton v. Jones, that courts need to be mindful of the demands placed in a president's time. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg noted that only Trump has withheld his tax returns. Every other president, since Nixon, has disclosed them voluntarily. Number two, a federal judge here in Washington last night temporarily blocked the Justice Department's move to drop charges against Michael Flynn, saying he expects independent groups and legal experts to argue against the bid to exonerate Trump's former national security advisor of lying to the FBI about his contact with the Russians. U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan, first appointed to the bench by Ronald Reagan, said in an order that he expects individuals and organizations will seek to intervene in the politically charged case. Having others weigh in could preface more aggressive steps that the judge could take, including, as many outside observers have called for, holding a hearing to consider what to do. Sullivan's order came after the government took the highly irregular step last Thursday of reversing its stance on upholding Flynn's guilty plea. Sullivan said he will, at the appropriate time, set a schedule for outside parties to argue against the DOJ claim as the government seeks to drop the charges. Experts say this order allows others to file objections to the move and could open the door for adversarial proceedings in which one or more attorneys argue against Bill Barr's Justice Department. It would also permit, if the judge chooses, requiring both sides to produce new evidence and revisit the case for and against Flynn. In an evidentiary hearing, Sullivan could call witnesses, including Flynn, his investigators and prosecutors to obtain more facts about how the case was handled and why Flynn and agents took the steps they did. Sullivan has not hesitated to personally question Flynn in court before. During a 2018 hearing, he rejected a defense motion supported by the government to give Flynn probation. Sullivan said he was not satisfied that the former three-star army general's cooperation with the special counsel Bob Mueller probe had been sufficient. Sullivan told Flynn in open court, quote, arguably, you sold your country out. Number three, Republicans in Wisconsin held on to a House seat and lead in early returns in a California special election. In Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District, GOP State Senator Tom Tiffany easily defeated Democratic School Board member Trisha Zunker. Tiffany will fill the seat left vacant by Republican Sean Duffy, who abruptly left Congress in the fall, setting health complications with a child due in October. That child was born a month early and needed heart surgery. But the race for California's 25th district may remain unresolved for several days, as Democratic Assemblywoman Christy Smith appeared to be closing the gap with Republican businessman and former Navy pilot Mike Garcia in ballot returns. But still, she trails by significant margins. That California seat, which represents swaths of Los Angeles and Ventura counties, opened up in October when former Democratic Congresswoman Katie Hill resigned amid a sex scandal after wresting the seat from Republicans for the first time in 26 years. The winners in both the Wisconsin and California races will finish the term, but will have to face their same opponent again in November to earn a full two-year term in D.C., A new Marquette University Law School poll finds Joe Biden leading Trump in Wisconsin by three points, fueled by a significant and surprising double-digit advantage among seniors who are unhappy with the president's response to the coronavirus crisis. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party moved yesterday to allow remote voting for its summer convention. DNC leaders agreed unanimously after a three-hour meeting to give convention planners broad flexibility to change the structure and tradition of the nominating convention. Democratic planners have emphasized that no final decision has been made on the event, which is still scheduled to begin in Milwaukee on August 17th. In a normal year, the event would draw as many as 50,000 people. This year, no matter what happens, it will be far fewer. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, May 13th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow.